Good morning, Christ City. Happy 2021 or happy 2020 extended, however you are looking at that. Uh, my name is Andrea, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City. I'm happy to be with you this morning, coming to you live from my dining room. Um, we're in a series right now called The Deeply Formed Life. And the series is based on a book by a pastor named Rich Viotas, who um, pastors up in Brooklyn, New York. And we decided last year that we would start this year off reading this book together, preaching through its five values and reflecting together in our small group discussions. So I want to encourage you to get a copy of the book and read it. <laughs> um, the book, the church has a few copies available um, if you need one, so you can let us know. Again, small groups start this week. If you haven't connected with a group yet, you can check out our website for the directory of small groups. I did hear there's a cool new one that's meeting on Mondays this semester. Um, I, I can honestly say um, with the intensity of this past year, my small group has been one of the things that has enabled me to have some kind of stability. Um, it's been a place for me to process and just be with other people, even if that's completely virtual, which all of our groups uh, this semester will be virtual continuing. And so as we explore more what a deeply formed life that reflects Jesus looks like, I'm eager to do that with other people and not just by myself. So if you have any questions about small groups, you can jump on the Hangout after the service. You should do that anyway. Um, and you can certainly send any of the staff an email and we will um, we'll help you out. So in this series, The Deeply Formed Life, and in the book, Pastor Rich Fiotas examines five transformative values to root us in the way of Jesus. And those five values are contemplative rhythms, racial justice, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. And so each week, we're going to be looking at one of those things on Sunday in the sermon, and then we'll be discussing it in our small groups that following week. So if you're reading along in the book, you can read the week ahead in preparation for the sermon on Sunday, or you can read it before your small group discussion that week. This week, we're looking at contemplative rhythms, which is just the exact thing I feel like we need to be talking about and the thing I want to talk about the least. Um, I'm guessing that this is, maybe you feel similar. Uh, this might be the same for many of us, but honestly, I am, I'm like baseline exhausted in every facet of my life right now. I had a short break from uh, work and from school during the holidays. And at the end of it, I honestly felt like I hadn't even scratched the surface of rest. Um, I needed like 10 more days. I think it's just, you know, the pandemic, the social distancing, the grief, the fear, the anger, living in DC during this particular political season, not to mention the unbelievable events of last week at the Capitol, and the uncertainty of what this week might bring to our city. When do we get a break? Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, I'm exhausted. And I know you are too. And for those of us who have committed ourselves to the work of the kingdom, this year, this past year has either 
deeply confirmed our understanding of or very much opened our eyes to the vastness of the work to be done, particularly around racial justice. Pastor Rich Fiotas, he names this fatigue as threefold. There's fatigue of the body, of the mind, and of the soul. All three things. I read an article a while back about how the isolation we've all been forced into because of the pandemic actually affects our sleep, both in terms of quantity and quality, body fatigue of the body. I have felt both bombarded by and strangely addicted to the news and to social media, particularly through the election season, fatigue of the mind. And it's been really hard to recognize and engage with anything, honestly, that might be defined as soul refreshing, fatigue of the soul. It's been hard to pray. It's been hard to look for God. It's been hard to look for signs of the kingdom. We're tired, body, mind, and soul. And a lot of the days, honestly, I've just checked out of all three and either just done enough to get by so I can go to sleep or just done enough to get by so that I can zombie out in front of a screen while I shove junk food in my mouth. I, I started therapy this past year for the first time in my life. 2020 felt like a good year to do that. Um, it's been good, very hard work. Um, but this past week, I told my therapist, I, I was like, I can't. I can't engage. I, I don't even know why I kept this appointment. <laughs> I felt too tired. I felt too way far deep into survival mode and just felt like I can't, I can't engage. And instead we just proceeded to unpack my exhaustion. And he asked me about my faith, what role it's been playing for me. And I told him that there are days where my faith doesn't mean a lot, honestly, that it doesn't feel, feel near, that it doesn't feel relevant sometimes. But I also recognized in answering his question that there are two things that I've held on to consistently, like anchors on days where I remember God's closeness and on days where I just ignore it altogether. The two anchors, God is always present and with me and that God loves me. And it doesn't seem coincidental that those two messages were the themes of the last sermon of 2020, which I preached. And then the first sermon of 2021 that Justin preached, which we did not plan. And in preparing for this sermon and, and for this series, I'm being reminded that God is present. God loves me and God desires to sustain my days and my nights and my processing and my work in all its many forms. And I'm realizing the necessity of new rhythms. And I don't know exactly what they are yet, but I do, I feel them beckoning me. Watson preached last week. If you haven't listened to his sermon, please do. It was really good. Um, one thing, he said many things that stuck out to me. One of those things though that has really echoed within me as I've prepared to preach this week. Uh, he said, we don't drift into following Jesus. I think seeing the idolatry of professing Christians in our country last week in our city is blatantly indicative of this. We don't drift into following Jesus, but also so is my own formation this year. I don't just drift into following Jesus. 
Now, this series isn't meant to be a new to-do list. It's not meant to be something more to just pile onto your already full capacity. It's also not meant to be a guilt trip in which we try to make up for the ways in which we've chosen or allowed ourselves to drift somewhere else. Our hope is that engaging with this series will give us a better understanding, a deeper understanding of the good, loving God that we proclaim and a better understanding of the life that we have not only been called to live, but the gift that that life is to us. We're meant to work. We're meant to be engaged. And we cannot avoid the ways in which life exhausts us. But we're also called to rest and refreshment and sustenance. And as we start this new year, bringing with us our grief and our lament and our exhaustion, let's consider our rhythms of contemplation and rest as resistance to the freneticism around us and as a tangible sign of our commitment to follow Jesus. We're going to look at the gospel of Mark this morning. Mark gives us an example of Jesus modeling this, of Jesus engaging in a rhythm of work and of rest. So we're going to read uh, this passage together. We'll start in verse 29. Uh, the, The passage, the text will be in the chat, wherever you are. Mark 1, verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place. And there he prayed. In Mark's gospel, this particular account, Jesus proclaims, he proclaims the kingdom of God and does two main kinds of miracles. He exercises demons or unclean spirits, and he heals physical ailments. You see this over and over again as a pattern in Mark of what Jesus does. In chapter one, he begins his ministry by calling the first disciples. Then he exercises an unclean spirit out of a man. And then he heals Simon's mother-in-law. So word of him has begun to spread around that region, obviously. And verse 32 says that evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons and the whole city was gathered around the door and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. The entire city was at the door where he was wanting something from him, many of them in literal life or death situations. And that day he goes to work healing and casting out demons as proclamation to the kingdom. But then the next verse indicates that he got up while it was still dark to go to a deserted place to pray, to be alone in disciplined solitude. There's a difference between isolation and solitude. In isolation, we retreat into ourselves. But in disciplined solitude, as a contemplative rhythm, we retreat to God. In the midst of Jesus's most famous moment thus far, 
in the book of Mark, he retreats to God in solitude and in prayer. That verse that talks about his, his retreat, verse 35, talking about his pursuit of solitude with the Lord is actually sandwiched in between descriptions of the people who were looking for him, who were pursuing him. So on the front end of verse 32, which we already read, people were looking for Jesus to heal them, to cast demons out of their friends and their family. It says the whole city was gathered around the door. And on the other side of Jesus's prayerful solitude, or rather during his time of prayerful solitude, verse 36 reads, Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. The word translated as hunted in verse 36, it has a a bit of an intense connotation, possibly even a a militaristic association. It's a hostile pursuit. It's pointed. It's urgent. There are needs. There is work. People are waiting. Yet Jesus's pursuit did not change based on what was pursuing him. He lived within the limits of his humanity, even as he was fully God too. In solitude and in stillness, Jesus went to commune with the Lord. Studying this passage this week, had me mentally listing the the many things like I feel are pursuing me and then listing the even greater things that I know are pursuing some of you. There are needs. They are legitimate. Both things we can control and things we can't. Maybe I don't have the entire city at my front door, but my kids ask me questions from the other side of the bathroom door feels pretty similar sometimes. There are injustices to write. There are mouths to feed. There are people to minister to. And yet, we follow the example of Jesus in intentionally slipping away to be with God. I don't know what this might look like for you. I'm trying to figure it out myself. I was recently asked how my prayer life was, and I realized that where I am right now is I'm currently working on a no prayer at all, or red hot emergency prayer plan. Like lots of sporadic, help me, help us, help, help, help prayers right now, or like radio silence. That's kind of how I'm operating. Not a lot in between. I've got to figure out what this kind of intentional rhythm looks like for me. And I can't define it for you. That's yours to do. But I can say even with as much teeth gritting as I feel about having to say it to myself too. We are not built to go all the time at the pace that we do. We are not meant to carry the world, even as we are called to God's work in it. To place it all on ourselves is to take on the heavy yoke of the world, not Jesus's yoke. There will always always be things pursuing us, both right things and not right things. But like Jesus, our pursuit does not change based on the things that are pursuing us. The work is God's and God's work is not defined by our limitations. God is at work in our work and in our rest. 
God is our sustenance. In John 15, Jesus uses the metaphor of a vine and branches to illustrate this, to illustrate God as our source and our sustenance. I'm going to read this. This is John 15, starting in verse one. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You've, you have already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. Justin mentioned a couple weeks ago that any time in scripture that you see something repeated, you should pay attention to it. So in Jesus's vine metaphor here, the phrase bear fruit appears six times within eight verses. If we are the branches, the fruit we grow absolutely matters. The work we do, the way we live, our formation is not only significant, but it's indicative of whether or not the branch is attached to the vine. The point of a branch is to bear fruit. A branch that is attached to the vine cannot help but to bear fruit. We do not bear fruit on our own. We cannot in our own strength produce fruit. Jesus says, I am the vine. My father is the vine grower. The fruit we produce grows only because the vine is true and the vine grower is good. And the fruit we do bear is not for our own sustenance. That's not what sustains us. The fruit we do bear belongs to the vine grower who uses it as they please. We do not bear fruit by ourselves. We don't water or prune ourselves. We don't even choose the kind of fruit we bear from the vine. The command to us here from Jesus is not go, bear fruit. That's not the command. But the instruction and the command is to abide in me, to stay connected to the vine. The word that's translated as abide or remain is used in this passage nine times. Abide in me. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Abide. We remain attached to the vine. That's our abiding place, our abode, where we make ourselves at home. This determines both the kind of fruit we bear and whether or not we produce it. Tomorrow, we will commemorate what would have been Martin Luther King Jr.'s 92nd birthday. This day has come to be a rallying point around service, which is great. But let's also not miss the significance of Dr. King's sustenance. I was reading about his life and about his death this week, and I came across the, the well-known story 
of Dr. King's encounter with God at his kitchen table. He details it in his book that's called Stride Towards Freedom. He had been facing death threats for speaking against both systemic and personal racial injustice. He was being challenged and threatened for pointing towards another way. It was a costly way, but another way, the true way. This particular night, he received a phone call at his home, threatening not just him, but his wife and his daughter in their home. Talk about being pursued. Dr. King describes how in the middle of the night, sitting at his kitchen table, praying out of desperation and fear, God met him in the silence. He clearly understood that he was to stand up for truth, for justice, and he was reassured that God was with him. And he said he felt after that as if he was ready to face anything, which is remarkable. I just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I, I didn't know this, but at the time of his death, Dr. King had been planning to take an extended retreat at a Trappist monastery in Kentucky under the spiritual direction of a monk named Thomas Merton. And I read this week that even in the midst of a crushing speaking calendar and the incessant demands of national leadership, King often would spend what he called a prayer-centered day in a motel while he traveled, longing for the spiritual renewal obtained through inner quiet and contemplative prayer. His mentor, Howard Thurman, called this centering down. Dr. King was centering down. He was abiding in chaos, in confusion, and in uncertainty. In the midst of being pursued with hostility, he remained. And his connection to the true vine and good vine grower defined not only his capacity for the work, but what the work was. This week, you're going to have an opportunity to think through some practices that might be helpful for you as we continue to learn what it means to abide. And I recognize how challenging this is in light of, again, in light of the events that are happening in our city that have happened, that might happen this week, in light of the the year that we have all lived through. This is hard. Pastor Rich gives some examples in the book. You can talk through some different practices in your small group. There are lots of resources out there. Watson mentioned one super simple practice in our prep meeting last week. Bookend your day. There are so many things that we don't have control over, especially these days. Maybe engaging in a practice of contemplative rhythms can be as simple as setting our intentions to the first and the last moments of our day. Instead of picking up our phone immediately or falling asleep with it in our hand, as I am, that I do sometimes, um, instead of doing that, maybe it's we spend an intentional moment to just breathe and abide. I'm praying for us to have clarity around our own rhythms this week. And I'm praying that we can remember that these practices are not rewards for good work. They're not chores to check off but they're gifts to us from the good vine grower, enabling us to abide and to remain connected to the true vine, which is Jesus. Let me pray for us now.
God, we ask this week that as we start thinking about our rhythms, maybe that just means having to face what our rhythms have been unintentionally this year, like me. We ask God for clarity. We ask for peace. We ask for your presence. I pray, Lord, against any kind of guilt that might creep its way in. I pray, Lord, against um, just a task-oriented posture. I pray, Lord, that you would make very clear to us the ways that we have taken on the wrong yoke. Thank you, Lord, for being our sustenance, for sustaining us. We look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.